You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is the beginning of Part 4, subtitled From Theosophy to Anthroposophy. And this is Lecture 16, entitled Homeless Souls, given in Dornach on June 10, 1923. The reflections we are beginning today are meant to encourage all those who have found their way to anthroposophy to think about their current position. Ellipsis There are those who found this path through an inner necessity of the soul or heart. Others, perhaps, found it through the search for knowledge. There are many, however, who entered the anthroposophical movement for more or less mundane reasons. Through a deepening of the soul, they have subsequently, perhaps, encountered more within it than they, had, than they at first anticipated. But there is something that all those who end up in the anthroposophical movement have in common. They are initially driven by their inner destiny, their karma, to leave the ordinary highway of civilization on which the majority of humankind at present progresses to search for their own path. Let us think for a moment about the conditions in which most people now grow up. They are born to parents who are French or German, Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, or who belong to some other faith and may hold a variety of beliefs. But parents have the almost unquestioned assumption, which remains unspoken and sometimes unthought, that their children will grow up like themselves. These kinds of feelings naturally engender a social ambiance, indeed social pressures which more or less consciously push children into the kind of life that has been mapped out by these more or less clearly defined beliefs. The life of a child, then, follows its natural course of education and schooling. And during this time, parents once again have all kinds of beliefs that exert a decisive influence on their children's lives. The belief, for instance, that my son will, as a matter of course, enter the secure employment of the civil service, or inherent, inherit the parental business, or that my daughter will marry the man next door. It simply lies in the nature of social circumstances that people are governed by impulses arising in this way. They have no choice in the matter because that is the effect of the beliefs governing life. It may not always be obvious to parents, but schooling and all the other circumstances of childhood and youth imprison us and determine our position in life. The institutions of state and religion make the adult. If the majority of people were asked to explain how they got where they are today, they would not be able to do so, because there would be something unbearable about having to think deeply about such matters. This unbearable element tends to be driven underground into subconscious or unconscious areas of our soul life. At best, if it 
behaves in a particularly recalcitrant manner down there in those unknown provinces of the soul, then a psychiatrist will dredge it up. But mostly one's own personality, the self, is simply not strong enough to assert itself against what one has grown into in this way. Occasionally, people have the urge to rebel when their situation as a trainee or student or even after graduation unexpectedly dawns on them. You might, if you are a man, clench your fist in your pocket or, if you are a woman, create a scene at home because of such disappointed life expectations. These are reactions against what people are forced to become. We also frequently seek to anesthetize ourselves by concentrating on the pleasant things in life. We go to dances and follow this with sleeping in. We fill up time in one way or another. Or some might join a thoroughly patriotic party because their professional position demands that they belong to something that will reflect their values. This is roughly how people who move in the mainstream of life grow into their existence. Those who find it difficult to accept this end up on many possible and impossible byways. Anthroposophy is precisely one of these paths on which human beings are seeking to realize themselves. They come to anthroposophy because they want to live with a more conscious understanding of themselves. They want to experience something that to some extent at least is under their control. Anthroposophists are, for the most part, people who do not walk along the main highways of life. If we investigate further why that should be, we find that this is linked with the spiritual world. Human beings after a life on earth relive the course of that life in the spiritual world after death. There they enter a region where they become increasingly assimilated into the spiritual world, where their lives consist of working together with the beings of the higher hierarchies, where all their acts are related to this world of substantive spirit. But a time arrives when they begin to turn their attention to earth again. For a long time, in advance of their birth, human beings unite on a soul level with the generations at the end of which stand the parents who will give birth to them, not only as far back as their great-great-grandparents, but much further back in the line of preceding generations. The majority of souls nowadays look down, as it were, to earth from the spiritual world and display a lively interest in what is happening to their ancestors. Such souls move in the mainstream of contemporary life. In contrast, there are a number of souls, particularly at present, whose interest is concentrated less on worldly happenings as they approach a new life on earth than on the question of how they can develop maturity in the spiritual world. Their interest lies in the spiritual world right up to the moment before they find their way to earth. As a consequence, when they incarnate, they arrive with a consciousness that has its origins in spiritual impulses. With their spiritual ambitions, they outgrow their environment. They are predestined and prepared to go their own way. Thus the souls who descend from pre-earthly to earthly existence can be divided into two groups. One group, 
to which the majority of people today still belong, comprises those souls who can make themselves remarkably at home on earth. They feel thoroughly comfortable in their warm nest, which so fascinated them long before they came down to earth, even if this does occasionally appear unpleasant. Of course, that is only appearance or maya. Other souls who may appear to pass patiently through childhood or are less able to make themselves at home. They are homeless souls and grow beyond the warmth of the nest much more than they grow into it. This latter group includes those souls who are subsequently attracted to the anthroposophical movement. It is therefore clearly predetermined in a certain sense whether or not an individual is led to anthroposophy. The things that are being sought by these souls on the byways of life, away from the major highways, manifest themselves in many ways. If the others did not find it so agreeable to take the well-trodden paths and did not put such obstacles in the way of homeless souls, the numbers of the latter would be much more obvious to their contemporaries. But it is widely apparent today how many souls have a hint of such homelessness about them. The tendency to such homelessness could be anticipated. There is the rapidly growing evidence of a longing for an attitude to life that was not laid out in advance. There is a longing for the spirit in the chaos of contemporary spiritual life. In sketching an outline of this gradual development, you can find in it, if you reflect a little, something of what I would like to describe as the anthroposophical origins of each one of you. By way of introduction today, I will do no more than pick out in outline some characteristic features. Consider the last decades of the 19th century. We could take any number of fields, but let us take a very characteristic one, the cult of Richard Wagner. It is certainly true that much of this cult consisted of a cultural flirtation with new ideas, sensationalism, and so on. All kinds of people gathered in Bayreuth. One could see people who thought of the long journey to Bayreuth as a kind of modern pilgrimage. But even among these bohemian types there were those who were also homeless souls. The essential effect of Wagnerism, not just as a musical element, but also as a cultural phenomenon, was to offer people something that went beyond all the usual offerings of a materialistic age. This gave people the feeling that here there was a gateway to a more spiritual world, a world that was different from their normal environment. What went on in Bayreuth led to a great longing for more profound spiritual aspirations. It was, of course, difficult at first to understand Richard Wagner's characters and dramatic compositions, but many people felt that they were created from a source very different from the crude materialism of the time. And the homeless souls who were driven in this particular direction were prompted into all kinds of dark, instinctive intuitions through what I might call the suggestive power of Wagnerian drama, and specifically through the way of life it introduced into our culture. Indeed, it is true to say that subsequent interpretations by theosophists of Hamlet or other works of art are very strongly reminiscent of certain essays written by Hans von Volzogen 
who was not a theosophist, but a trained Wagnerian in the Bayreuther Blatter. One may say, then, that Wagnerism was the reason why many people possessed of a homeless soul became acquainted with a way of looking at the world that led away from crude materialism towards something spiritual. All those who became part of such a current, not because of a superficial flirtation with the idea, but because of an inner compulsion of the soul, wanted to develop their experience of a spiritual world because they felt this kind of inner longing. They were no longer concerned with the evidence underpinning the materialistic worldview. That was true, irrespective of their position in life. Whether they were lawyers or artists, cabinet ministers, officials, parliamentarians, or even scientists. As I said, such homeless souls can be found everywhere. But Wagnerism provides a particularly characteristic example of the presence of very many such souls. In the late 1880s in Vienna, I encountered several of those people whose first spiritual taste had been the Wagnerian experience. This was a group consisting entirely of such homeless souls. People no longer really appreciate the way that homelessness was visible for anyone to see even then, because many of the things that then required a great deal of inner courage have become commonplace today. For example, I do not believe that many people today could imagine the following. I was sitting once in a circle of such homeless souls. All kinds of things had already been discussed. One person started to speak about Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov. He spoke in such a way that the group felt as if it had been struck by lightning. A new world opened up. It was like suddenly finding oneself on a new planet. That is how these souls felt. Ellipsis Having passed through their Wagnerian metamorphosis, these homeless souls were also involved in a second process of change. For example, in this group were three good acquaintances, intimate friends even, of H. P. Blavatsky. They were keen theosophists in the way that theosophists were when Blavatsky was still alive. But a peculiar quality adhered to theosophists at that time, the period following the appearance of Blavatsky's title Isis Unveiled and title The Secret Doctrine. They all had a desire to be extremely esoteric. They had nothing but contempt for their normal life, including, of course, their work. Exoteric life, however, was not something that could be avoided. That was accepted, but everything else was esoteric. In this setting you spoke only to fellow initiates, only within a small group, and those who were not considered worthy of talking to about such things were seen as people with whom one spoke only about the ordinary things in life. It was with the former that you discussed esoteric matters. They were people who, although they might be engineers, from the moment they stepped into practical life, would avidly read a book like Sinnott's titled Esoteric Buddhism. These people possessed a certain urge, partly still as a result of their Wagnerian past, to explain all legends and myths from an esoteric perspective. As more and more of these homeless souls began to appear at the end of the nineteenth century, one could begin to see how the most interesting among them were not those who studied the writings of Sinnott and Blavatsky, 
will at most a nine-tenths honest mind. But those who did not wish to read for themselves, because they still had great inhibitions about such things. They listened with gaping mouths when those who had been reading expounded on these things. It was most interesting to observe how these listeners, who were sometimes more honest than the narrators, grasped these ideas with their homeless souls as essential spiritual nourishment. To listen was for them spiritual nourishment, which despite the relative dishonesty with which it was being presented to them, they were able to transform into something more honest through the greater honesty of their souls. One could see in them the yearning to hear something completely different from what was offered in the ordinary mainstream of civilization. How they devoured what they heard. It was most interesting to observe how on the one hand the tentacles of mainstream life kept drawing people in, and how on the other they would appear at one of the meeting places, often a coffee house, and listen with great yearning. The point is that the honest souls, the ones who had been subject to the vagaries of life, were there too. How souls unwilling to admit to their homelessness were unable to find their bearings was particularly evident toward the latter part of the nineteenth century. A person might, for instance, listen with profound interest to an explanation of the physical, etheric, and astral bodies, kama manas, manas, buddhi, and so on. At the same time, he was obliged to write the article his newspaper expected, including all the usual goodies. It really became clear how difficult it was for some to leave the mainstream of life, for there were several among them who behaved as if they wanted to slink away and would prefer that no one knew where they had gone when they wished to attend what was most important and interesting to them in life. It was indeed interesting how spiritual life, spiritual activity, the yearning for a spiritual world, began particularly to establish itself in European civilization. Now, you have to remember that circumstances in the late 1880s were really much more difficult than today. Even if it was less harmful, it was nevertheless more difficult then to admit to the existence of a spiritual world because the physical world of the senses with all its magnificent laws had been proven, of course. There was no way of getting around that. All the proofs were there in the physics laboratories and the hospitals. All the evidence declared in favor of a world for which there was proof. But the world that could be proven was unsatisfactory for many homeless souls. It was useless to their inner souls to such an extent that many crept away from it. And at the same time that this great contemporary culture was on offer to them by the sack, no, by the ton, in giant quantities, they took what nips they could from what has to be seen as the flow of the spiritual world into modern civilization. It was not at all easy to speak about the spiritual world. A suitable point of entry had to be found. Let me again introduce a personal note. I had to find a suitable opportunity on which to build. One could not simply crash in on our civilization with the spiritual world. In the late 1880s I linked what I had to say about the spiritual world, about its more intimate aspects, with Goethe's title, Fairy Tale of the Green Snake and the Beautiful Lily. 
using something that had been created by no less a figure than Goethe, when it was as obvious as it is in the fairy tale that spiritual impulses had flowed into it, was a suitable basis. I certainly could not use what was then being peddled as theosophy, what had been garnered from Blavatsky, from Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism, and from similar books, by a group of people who were undeniably hard-working. For someone who wanted to preserve his scientifically schooled thinking in the spiritual world, this was simply impossible. Neither was it easy in another respect. Why? Well, Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism was soon recognized as the work of a spiritual dilettante, a compendium of old, badly understood esoteric bits and pieces. But it was less easy to find access to a phenomenon of the period, such as Blavatsky's secret doctrine. For this work did at least reveal in many places that much of its content had its origins in real powerful impulses from the spiritual world. The book expressed a large number of ancient truths gained through atavistic clairvoyance in distant ages of humankind. People thus encountered in the outside world, not from within themselves, something that could be described as an uncovering of a tremendous wealth of wisdom that humanity had once possessed as something exceptionally illuminating. This was interspersed with unbelievable passages which never ceased to amaze because the book is a sloppy and dilettantish piece of work as regards any sort of methodology and includes superstitious nonsense and much more. In short, Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine is a peculiar book, great truths side by side with terrible rubbish. One might almost say that it sums up very well the spiritual phenomena to which those who developed into the homeless souls of the modern age were subjected. In the following period in Weimar I was, of course, occupied intensively with other things, although even then there were numerous opportunities to observe such searching souls. And subsequently, when I went to Berlin, destiny once again introduced me to a group of homeless souls. In fact, I became involved to such an extent that this group asked me to hold lectures, which have now been published in my title, Mystics After Modernism. They were people who found their way into the Theosophical Society at a somewhat later date than my Viennese acquaintances. Only a few of them studied Blavatsky's secret doctrine, but they were well versed in what Blavatsky's successor, Annie Besant, proclaimed as the Theosophical Ideas of the Time. So I found myself once again in a similar situation to the one in Vienna in the late 1880s, in which it was possible to observe such homeless souls. And anthroposophy at first grew up, one might say, together with, not in, but together with, homeless souls, who had initially sought a new home in theosophy. Ellipsis, end of lecture 16.